Thank you, worship team. It's always so encouraging to come together and sing those songs of praise and worship. I so appreciate you guys taking the time for that. Um, what a blessing to be back. Thank you for those that have been praying for Angie and I as we get over this COVID thing. Um, wasn't too brutal, but definitely wears you out. So it's good to be back to, and uh, to be shared with you this morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we're so thankful that we can come together and sing these songs and lift you up. You are so worthy of our praise. And we just commit this time to you, trust your work in it. And as we come, we know that uh, there's a number of people that have a lot of heavy things on their hearts and minds right now. And pray that you would just answer their prayer according to your will. We trust you. There's physical issues. There's, there's struggles uh, spiritually, emotionally. Um, we just commit all this to you. Trust that your work is a, a body this size. We know that there's things that we're just not even aware of, and we just commit them to you as well. Thank you for this time that we can open your word and that you teach us and lead us into all truth. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. A story is told of a store manager who heard his clerk tell a customer, well, no, ma'am, we, we haven't had any of that for a while. And uh, it doesn't look like we're going to get any anytime soon. Well, the, the manager heard this conversation and came running over to the the customer and said, of course we'll have it soon. We, we ordered it last week. It'll be here any time. Just, just got to give it a little time. And uh, then the manager pulled the clerk aside and said, never, ever, ever say that we are out of anything. Just say that we've put it on order and it's coming. Now, what is it that she wanted? She wanted rain. She wanted to know about rain. She didn't know when it had rained last. And I told her that I didn't know when it was going to rain last. And so... It's been said that a lie has no legs. It requires other lies to support, to support it. Tell one lie and then you're forced to tell others to back it up. Stretching the truth won't make it last any longer. Another story is told about four high school students that wanted to take the morning off, nice day, so they, they went out, just drove around for a while, and uh, showed up after lunch at the school, met one of the teachers, and the teacher says, where have you been? Oh, one of our tires went flat. And she says, okay, that's, I'm glad you're here. So you missed a quiz. Why don't you sit down and we'll take that quiz together? So they got out their paper and pencil. And she says, okay, the first question, which tire went flat? <laughs> there was a recent study done by the University of La Crosse. And on the subject of lying, what they found was rather enlightening. They found that most people, about 75% of surveyed respondents, told up to two lies a day. Lying comprised 7% of their conversation, and 90% of the lies they would consider to be white lies. And when asked the question, why do people lie, here were some of the four responses. 21% said to avoid others. 20% said as a humor, uh, a joke, or a prank. 14% to protect oneself, and 13% to impress or appear more favorable than they are. You see, we live in a culture that is, uh, which truth is often the, the casualty of interactions between each other. We have an incredible lab, elaborate system of lawyers and contracts and notaries and binding signatures to ensure that we do what we say we will do and uh, at least the one is perceived to be important enough. But none of it makes people more truthful. In fact, most people don't even believe truth is an objective reality. 
So please turn, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 33 to 48. And the passage we're considering is talking about truth. And I'll begin reading from verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of old that you shall not swear falsely and shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil comes from evil. So it may seem a little anticlimactic after spending the last few weeks dealing with murder, adultery, eye plucking, and hand lopping, but uh, we're going to be dealing with the subject of truth. But the issue Jesus is addressing here goes to the very core of a person's character, to the heart of what it means to be a child of God. Jesus demonstrates that righteousness and harmony is not a matter of oaths or vows, but just plain honesty and truth-telling. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of the ancients or the old, do not break your oath, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. The reference to the old could mean any time during the Old Testament period in general. It could mean a specific reference to the Exodus period or generation when uh, the ninth commandment was given that you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Regardless of which the old is Jesus has in view, it's clear that he's discussing a long-standing practice of vows and oaths. And to vow or make an oath by something was to say that your promise is as good or as lasting as the thing that you're swearing by. And if someone were to swear by a mountain, they would be saying, as long as this mountain is here, I will be here and I will do what I promise. And people typically swore by things that endured um, as a way of adding gravity to their oaths. And the most uh, permanent thing a person could swear by was God. And they avoided that. You see, you don't see it in this passage. It was a very serious step to swear by God. You were bound by that. And God would hold you accountable for that. In Leviticus, we see, you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And we see also in Deuteronomy, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it, is, it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God would surely require it of you. And from these verses and many others, it's obvious that the Lord takes his name very seriously, especially in regards to making oaths or vows. Because of this, the people of Israel created this elaborate set of rules and regulations that somehow skirt that issue, to get around it, to wiggle their way out of the promises that they would like to maintain by maintaining this facade of righteousness. People would make vows, not by God's name, but by heaven, or by earth, or by Jerusalem, or even the color of the hair on your head. And when they broke their promises, they didn't quite feel so guilty. <clears throat> because it was not made to the Lord himself. And Jesus is addressing the hypocrisy of the day, especially as it relates to the Pharisees. Jesus simply says, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. In other words, just tell the truth. Stop deceiving one another by trying to wiggle your way out of, of, uh, of, our, of agreements, and quit trying to put more weight behind your words than what you can vouch for. Don't swear by anything, just Tell the truth. 
Forget about making all these elaborate oaths and vows. Simply tell the truth. If you haven't, uh, would you turn to 2 Corinthians? Actually, 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians. Um, I made a mistake on that slide. But 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 6. Uh, we're going to touch on that just a bit. But when I was a kid, I remember uh, saying to my friends, I bet you on a stack of Bibles that. And I would kind of fill in the blank. I felt if I could, I could make a you know, promise on a stack of Bibles, that was better than one. So I went with a whole stack of Bibles. Somehow that just had more weight behind it. And, uh, but you know, 2 Corinthians is really a great passage because it puts things in perspective. And I begin reading in verse 1. I must, go, I must go on boasting. This is Paul speaking. Though there is nothing to be gained by it. If I go on with visions, if I go on to visions and revelations of the Lord, I know a man in Christ, and it's interesting because that person is Paul himself speaking, but he just kind of puts it in second person, who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on, on, but on my behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. And though I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. It would be reasonable, in other words, to boast. He has every reason to boast in light of what he went through. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it. And this is a part, if you like to underline stuff, this last part of this verse is so rich. I refrain from it so that no one will think more of me than what he sees in me and hears from me, that he sees in me and hears from me. A person's character and reputation hinges on their words and their behavior. It matters. What we say, what we do matters. And you know, most people do not set out to lie about something, but sometimes lying comes in very subtle, subtle forms. If I tell the story about myself and exaggerate the details, to make myself look good, that's deceit, and that's sin, and that's a lie. When we leave out details to a story to shed a better light on something, we again are being deceitful, and lying comes in all shapes and sizes. Jesus is simply seen here, tell the truth. Tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus' entire ministry was focused on the heart of the person, because the heart is the root of a person's behavior. And if we desire to change our behavior, we must first recognize the condition of our heart and identify whether we're living for our own self and our own pleasures or for God and for his glory. After addressing the heart person or the heart of a person, he relates it to the words and behavior. Jesus addresses the topic of personal injustice. How should we respond when we deal with personal injustices? How should we respond when people hurt us? How should we respond when someone offends us? We have all been offended and we've all experienced hurt and pain and difficulties. We've all experienced it. And our natural response is to get even, uh, to defend ourselves, and perhaps even shame the other person, that's our natural tendency, isn't it? But scripture teaches that the Christian's response must be very different from that of the world. He's always making a comparison. He says, this is the way the world functions. This is the way the world goes, but I want you to go this way. I want, you can do better. 
this, is, this may be the, wor- the world's way, but do this. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ taught about the righteousness of kingdom citizens. In a nutshell, he says that we need to be different. We need to think differently. We need to behave differently. We just need to respond differently. And Christ describes six misinterpretations of the Old Testament law by Israel's religious leaders. He considered murder and adultery and divorce and oaths. And in Matthew 5, 8 through 42, he considers the fifth, the fifth misconception or misinterpretation of the law of the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And next, and lastly we'll cover today, he considers that of hating our enemies. Now the Pharisees teaching all these subjects were completely off base. They weren't even close to being true. In each of these areas, the Pharisee lessened and watered down the standard of God's law. By stark contrast, Jesus was always raising the bar, always bringing it to another level, always moving us and encouraging us to another level of spiritual maturity. Three times in the passage before us, Jesus states, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Well, you've heard it said here, but I I say to you. Well, you've heard it said, but I, I say to you. And whatever you were taught by the Pharisees, it's wrong. It's not right. Let me set the record straight. Look at verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the evil one, the one who is evil. But if, no one, if someone, anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the, the, the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have the cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, teachings of this passage um, are some of the most abused verses in Scripture. People have looked at this and kind of twisted it to kind of fit their own, their own perspective. Some have used these verses to, to support pacifism, you know, the belief of any violence, any kind of uh, war uh, is unjustifiable. And this, has been, this led believers not to join the military or the police or work in government or even practice self-defense. Because they look at this and say, well, this is what it says. Well, this passage has, has even used, been used to promote lawlessness and, and anarchy. Well, the Pharisees were masters at misinterpreting or misrepresenting the Old Testament law to, felt, to fit their self-serving beliefs and teachings. They were constantly using the law to manipulate those who sought to live by its standards. And so Jesus comes along and just blows this whole scheme to pieces. He starts off by saying, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, this was a fundamental principle of Old Testament law. They everyone knew that. And it taught that the punishment must fit the crime. And the law set boundaries on retaliation in order to, to control excessive behaviors or personal vengeances, taking it to another level. And with all Old Testament law, it represented God's righteousness and was a good law. It was a good thing. And it was especially good because it allowed fairness and it related to the administration of justice. And it was tempered by the, you know, to tempered the urge to retaliate and to calm, carry out responses far worse than the original offense. So it was a good, it was a good thing. It was in place and it was, it was working, it was functional. And typically when someone hurts someone, they want to get, you know, they want more than the eye for the eye, right? Say the selfish anger inside of us typically wants a body for an eye, you know, or a leg for an eye, or two legs for an eye. But Jesus is saying, I have a better way. 
I have a better way. Jesus points out a perfect way of responding to the wrongs more than keeping, you know, that they're more keeping with righteousness and mercy and love. In Jesus' teaching here, we find four balanced approaches to personal injustice. They all have to do with the surrender of something. And that's a tough word for some of us, for all of us, actually. We don't like to surrender things. We don't want to surrender our rights or possessions or time. We just want to kind of hang on to it. It's, it's mine. And uh, these four approaches are very balanced, but they all have to do with the surrender of something. And the first has to do with the surrender of our right to retaliation. The surrender of our right to retaliation. He says, look at verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer, but whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. Now, some have said, do not, you know, do not, uh, some have said that do not resist the evildoer means that the Christian should not resist evil at all, you know, in our society. The phrase do not resist means to not oppose or set ourselves against something or someone. The big idea of teaching here is that people of God need to be the kind of people who refuse personal revenge and retaliation and retribution, both in their actions and in their heart. And the Christians should be the people who show endless mercy and forgiveness. Again, Jesus is saying, this is a better way. You've heard it said, but I've got a better way. Not getting hung up on their righteous, on their rights to privilege, on their privileges and rights, but willing to give up, give up, surrender their rights and privileges. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't oppose evil. Rather, that we, rather, we're not to speak, seek retribution and revenge. Jesus is saying, I have a better way. You say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say don't seek to get even. You say the Old Testament permits us the freedom to fight back, but I say don't, take, don't seek revenge. And this is not saying don't seek justice or um, expose evil. Just don't let it consume you. Don't, let, uh, don't always look at getting even. At some point, you just need to let it go. And obviously, there's a place for justice. There is. And there's a place for addressing evil. And that's why we have a government and a system of law and order. Jesus is not commanding the, the believer to never resist an evil person. Or he certainly is not forbidding the government or court system from executing justice. Jesus is saying there's a better way. There's a better way. You've heard it said, but I've got a, I've got a better way. And the better way is don't let it consume your life with getting even or punishing the people that have hurt us. Let God be the judge. In the example before us, we say to the person who strikes you on the cheek, cheek offer the other as well. You might be thinking, well, it looks like I'm just supposed to roll over. I'm just supposed to take the beating, be a doormat. That's not what this says. When Jesus refers to being slapped on the right cheek, he's not referring to being physically attacked. To be slapped on the right cheek, one would have to use the back of their right hand, for most people who are right-handed, which certainly is a cultural consideration. It was a deep insult to hit someone with the back of your hand. And according to rabbinical law, even slapping with the back of the hand uh, was twice more offensive than being slapped with an open hand. It was, it was very offensive. And a slap on the face is a metaphor for an unexpected insult or an offense. Jesus is saying, did someone insult you? Hmm, let them. Are you shocked? Are you offended? Don't be. 
Don't return insult for insult. Turn the other cheek. This is simply a, a command to forego retaliation, to get even, to, for the personal offenses that we all experience. We all deal with this. And Christ was forbidding personal retaliation, not, not, civil, not civil justice. He was dealing with how we respond when evil is committed against us personally. And in this case, in that case, we should give up our right to retaliate and instead respond biblically. His teaching doesn't mean that we should never call the police or seek justice from the authorities. If someone breaks into my house and they shouldn't be there and they, they threaten my family, I've got a couple guns in my closet, and I'm going to go there and get them and I'm going to use them if I need to defend myself and defend my family. It means, in most cases, it's not our right to exact justice. But if we're being threatened, we do what we need to do. It means we surrender our right to get even. It's a standard that Jesus provided. Leave it in God's hands. Christ taught that his followers should not respond evil with evil. And we should not slap back or try to hurt a person you know, that has insulted us and offended us. Instead, we should willingly take the suffering when humiliated and put down, because we've all done that, and give up our right to retaliation, to get even. Retaliation is what most people would expect. It's how the world flows. It's how the world functions. They want to get even. They want to hurt back. They, wanna, they want to see justice is okay. But when it goes to another level, that's what Jesus is referring to here. Don't always have retaliation as the first course of action. Responding to hatred with love and ignoring personal slights displays the supernatural power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our life, and it is a great a testimony for who we are in Christ and our witness for Christ, and it's a sharing the gospel. Jesus was, of course, the perfect, perfect, perfect example of turning the other cheek because he was silent before his accusers, right? He didn't call down vengeance from heaven on all the Roman soldiers or the Jews that persecuted him. Instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, and most people don't. They're just so caught up in their own set of pain and their own set of issues, and they lash out, hurt people, hurt people, and that's what we deal with all the time. So how do we respond when others slap or insult you? How do we respond? How do you respond? Jesus said, kingdom citizens will give up their right to personal retaliation. This supernatural characteristic marks Christian or kingdom citizens in this world. We willingly suffer personal insult or assault in order to love God and love others more than ourselves. That's a tough place. It's tough. It's tough teaching. It was hard for these people to hear, and it's sometimes hard for us to hear it too. Well, the next area that we see is that of surrendering our rights to possessions. Surrendering our rights to possessions. If someone wants to sue you, and take your tunic, give him your coat also. There's so much to this passage or this verse. The second right believers must be willing to relinquish for Christ is their possessions. The tunic was simply a slip-on garment. It may be draped down below or above their knees, and it could be worn inside or out of the, outside of the, you know, the coat. But it was a, it was a, it was the, people would have multiple uh, tunics. Uh, they're kind of like a shirt, a long shirt. And it was usually belted with a waist and worn by men and women. But a coat, on the other hand, was a very expensive um, garment. Uh, people were typically owned only one. 
Often they were used as blankets to keep them warm at night and to, during the winter. If found guilty of a civil matter, the court would take the person's belongings, all of their belongings, except the coat. It was considered inhumane to take a person's coat. So how, how would they stay warm at night? How would they stay warm when it got cold? If it was taken as a pledge or a down payment in a court setting, it was always returned before night. And Jesus, though, though said this, if someone has a legal claim over you, you should make it right completely. He just took it to another level. Yeah, you can hang on to your coat, but if you owe someone something, sell it. <laughs> do what you got to do to make things right. He's, he says, if you sell your coat, you'll be able to pay the debt that you have. This would, be, this would show how much you feel, the remorse you have in, in light of your behavior. And the principle here is this, our possessions are to be held with an open hand before the Lord. If we owe someone something, we seek to make it right. We don't just live our life owing people things. This is hard teaching because we spend our life gathering things and it's hard to part with them. However, scripture teaches that the whole earth is the Lord's, everything, the things that we own, Everything that we own, we're just stewards of what God has given us, and we've been blessed so abundantly. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, we see that Christ calls us to not store up riches on this earth, but to practice simplicity, uh, since riches have a tendency to what? It steals our heart, it steals our affections, it steals our attention. And it was a person's legal right to, to keep his coat, but Jesus is saying here that sometimes we may be asked to surrender things that we have right, that are rightfully ours to keep. And we need to be willing to do that if God so leads. So as, Christ, so as we serve Christ, we need to relinquish our rights to our possessions if called to do so. If called to do so. So far we've been called to surrender our right to retaliation or surrender our right to possessions. Now we see we are to surrender our rights to time. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. The next example Christ shares is a consideration of our time. Roman soldiers had a legal right to force a citizen to carry their load for one mile in order to relieve him of his great burden. But in doing that, it causes a burden on the other person. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, Got to take a drink. I didn't know if I'd make it this long. But the spirit, the spirit of the law, oops, the spirit of the law that you would shoulder their burden even if they, um, I got her back up. The spirit of the law that you would help shoulder their, beaten, their burden even more than they've asked. He says, take it to another level. If they ask you for one mile, give them two. So how do we respond when someone asks us for time and our energy? How do we respond? Are we gracious? Do we recognize that our time and energy are the Lord's and he can use them as he sees fit? Do we just hang on to them? Do you trust God's sovereignty in the interruptions of your life, including interruptions and impositions by people who are rude and disrespectful, like a boss and sometimes a family member? As one author put it, our time is not ours, it's the Lord's, and he must be willing to use it to serve those who hurt us and harm us. Again, this just goes so against, you know, how we function, how a world around us functions. It's, this is so selfless. 
And the, the sacrifice of time and energy for others, including the unthankful, mark the, the kingdom uh, citizens in this world. Does it mark me? Does it mark you? And lastly, we see that we're called uh, to surrender our rights to money. Give to the one who asks, and do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, now this maybe more than the other statement seems almost impossible to follow. And, you know, if we had to give everything up, if we just surrender our money, how do we live? Uh, you know, we'll have no money. How's, how can this be done? Well, First Christ is not talking about giving to those that don't have legitimate needs, and uh, certainly not to give money to someone that's going to use it in a harmful way. When you set this verse alongside other scriptural references, you see that we need to be discerning and prayerful about how we use the resources that God's given us. Here, Jesus is basically saying, don't be stingy. Don't be stingy. If you have so much, then your response will be generous with what God's given you. Jesus is saying that we need to be willing to give and not withhold to those in need. And some might ask, what do we do with all the plethora of needs that are out there? Well, frankly, that's between you and God. It is between you and God. Is there more to, you know, it has more to do with our willingness to give than the actual amount that we give. If there's a willingness to give and the extra resources are there, God may lay it on your heart to give to a need and uh, you'll have peace about that decision. How many times have you heard it said, well, God laid it on my heart to give. Well, God just laid it on my heart to give, and I did that. And that's, that's great, but that's what God does. And we first need to be willing to surrender our resources, and God will move us in and out of this realm. Um, many have heard of, uh, of R.G. Letourneau, a uh, fascinating man. Most may not know his story. He and his wife, Evelyn, chose to give away 90% of their wealth. It may not mean a lot, but when you think about how much money he he earned over his lifetime. That was a lot. That was a lot. And Letourneau was one of the most unlikely leaders of the 20th century industry. From his humble beginnings and a seventh grade education, he taught himself engineering and eventually built a, a manufacturing empire. His entire, or his earth-moving machines helped win World War II and construct highway infrastructure of modern America today. But by the end of his life, he held over 299 patents. Now, the decision to give away 90% of his personal income and stock in the company was a result of a previous decision that he made when he was 30 years old. He was in debt. He was in debt. And he made God his business partner. And like many people with a love for God, he wanted to serve God full time. And he thought the way to do that was to be a missionary or a pastor or something like that. But he wasn't feeling led in that direction, so he met with his pastor, and his pastor gave him some great life-changing events. He said, Liter Mr. Uh, he said Brother Laterno, God needs businessmen as well as pastors and missionaries. And Laterno responded, all right, if, that was God, if that's what God wants from me, then I'll be his businessman. I'll be his partner and he can have the business. And God made him very wealthy, and he gave away most of his wealth. Letourneau would often say, the question is not how much money I give to God, but rather how much of my money I, I keep for myself. And how do you view money? Is it, a measurement? is it a measurement of your worth or a tool that you use for God's glory? See, God will bless you for being generous. 
Just follow his lead. So the previous scenarios were given by Jesus to make a point that our response to others should be based upon the Bible and what the Bible says. But the great and overarching motivation in all of this is that of love. Demonstrate love, verses 43 to 48. Verse 43 states, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, even, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brother, what more, um, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You see, Jesus causes followers to rise to a higher level of obedience, greater than that of the Pharisees in its context. We were, you know, who were careful to do the right things outwardly, but in, inwardly, they just were filled with sinful attitudes and selfish motives. Jesus begins in verse 43 by describing the relationship that the Pharisees sought. Well, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> Didn't say that. This phrase is a quote from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19:18. but there's nothing in the law that told the Jews to hate their enemies. They kind of just added that on there. It just seemed convenient. Jews saw other Jews as their neighbors. If you were a Jew and you were a neighbor, then you were a neighbor. But anyone outside the Jewish faith was an enemy. And this is the context here. So the word enemy would mean any unfriendly opponent. An enemy can be someone who hates us or seeks to harm us or cause us trouble. An enemy can be someone who's wronged us. An enemy can be just someone who is opposing on the other side. You know, the unfriendly person who has a sense of hostility towards our values or our beliefs that are important to us. And our natural response to people like that that hate us is to hate them back. You know, at least not to give them a time of day or dislike them, you know. But Jesus acknowledged the tendency to hate people for what they do and what they believe or what they value or what they threaten to take away from us. He says you need to avoid that. Verse 44 states, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is radical, radical thinking. Jesus challenges us to fight against our natural tendency to choose to respond in a supernatural way. So this is, this is how you naturally respond, but I want you to do this. Whatever that person is, or whoever that person is, the correct way to respond to your opponent is not to hate him or her, but to love him or her. And that's not natural. It's not, it's supernatural. It's super, it's a response that's so foreign to us. And the only way we're going to follow through on this instruction, this instruction is by asking God to change us from the inside out. We can't do this on our own. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, even those who persecute us. Pray is, prayer is creed. If it's, it's prayer that often changes our heart, isn't it? When we pray, it changes us. And it may not change the other person, but it changes us. And the way that we respond to people, it, by giving a supernatural response, we don't have to take, um, we don't have what it takes to love our enemies. We don't. But God does. Praying for your enemies demonstrates our desire to change something about us. But there needs to be a willingness to do that, to even pray. 
You know, some people won't even go there. They're not even pray that God give them a love for this person or the person that's hurt them and, and, and inflicted pain on them. They don't even go so far as to say, God, give me a love for that person because they need to be loved. They need you. And sometimes we just don't even take it to that level. We just kind of hold on to it and say, no, <laughs> they don't deserve prayer. But, you know, prayer communicates volumes to God when we ask him to help me love somebody. And you know he's going to fulfill that prayer because it fits right into his will. God's standard is different from human standards. Instead of asking who is worthy of our love, God says, who do you love who isn't worthy? Who do you love that's not worthy? An enemy does not deserve our love, but God says love him anyway. Pray for him. Proverbs 25, 21, we read, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. It kind of sounds like, hey, you know, it's kind of like in your face kind of a thing, and I'm going to, you know, do these nice things that are going to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm going to punish you, and then God's going to reward you. Well, that's not what this says. Many take this to mean that heaping coals on someone's face is a way of, our head is some way of punishing them or humiliating them or making them feel guilty. But to, to heap coals of fire on someone's head wasn't a curse. It was to harm them. It was a blessing. It was considered a blessing. And so why, why do we love others? What's the motivation behind this? You know, there's got to be, this is so foreign to us to love our enemies, you know, to, to love those that hurt us. It's not our natural tendency to just go out of our way and pray for someone that's, that's persecuting us. So what is that motivation? Well, we see that in verse 45, so that you may be the sons of your father who's in heaven. Now, there's only one reason to love your enemy. It's it. There's, it's only one. You should do it because that's what your heavenly father would do. He's modeled it for us. And how, does he re, how did he respond to the sinful world that we're in? Well, he loved our enemy. He loved, uh, we love our enemy. He loved his enemies. He demonstrated by us loving our enemies, we demonstrated that we belong to him, that we're his children. We prove our relationship with him. So Jesus gives two examples of common grace. He says we find, he says he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And so it doesn't matter whether a person is good or evil. God gives them both sunshine. And even if they don't acknowledge that it belongs to him, he gives it to them anyway. He gives them warmth and it allows the crops to grow. In the last part of 45, we see he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Rain is not a negative event in this passage. It's another positive gift. God waters the earth, and he doesn't, he doesn't supply food for just the righteous, but the unrighteous as well. And God gives, uh, you know, God gives without distinction. You hear that? God gives without distinction. He loves people indiscriminately. You don't have to earn God's love. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were all sinners. Jesus is calling us to the same radical love, one that will pray for those that harm us. This is radical teaching. <laughs> and it blew the, the Pharisees away along with everyone else. They're like, whoa, this is really hard teaching. But it's so true. It's so right. Look at verse 45. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, what more are you doing for others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? So hard. how hard is it to love someone who's love, loving you and treating you with respect? It's not hard at all. It's natural. It's, it's what you would do. 
But unlike God, human beings tend to love on the basis of reciprocal response, right? I'll love you in response to you loving me. And you love me, I'll, well, I'll love you back. And Jesus said, that's easy. That's natural. That takes no effort on your part. No, he says, there's a better way. And anyone can do that, but there's a better way. Look at verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have that even the tax collectors do the same? Or even the tax, don't even the tax collectors do the same? In Jesus' day, the tax collector was a low life. <laughs> they were despised human beings. Everyone hated them. The one thing nobody, you know, for one thing, nobody liked paying taxes. And these tax collectors were considered traitors. You know, Jewish agents of an occupied Roman government. And that, and that also meant that they spend their time with Roman citizens and Roman people, which made them unclean. And in addition to all that, these tax collectors would routinely overcharge people for their taxes and keep the profits for themselves, keep those margins for themselves. And Jesus points that even a low-life, treacherous, unclean, cheating thief can love someone who loves them. <laughs> but you can do better, he says. You can do better than that. Love your enemies. And if you greet only your brothers, verse 47, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? See, most of the Gentiles didn't recognize God. They didn't acknowledge him. They didn't worship him. They had their own religious beliefs. And of course, not knowing a true God didn't keep them from being friendly with one another. So, so the sobering question Jesus is addressing here, if they can be kind and loving to one another, and they don't even know me, how much more can you love? I mean, you should be able to notch it up quite a bit, right? And since you know the true God, you can do better. You can be friendly, more friendly with your friends and your enemies, and you can love the way that God loves. In a nutshell, Jesus is saying, do you love indiscriminately the way that God loves? Do you love without distinction the way that God loves? Do you love based on grace the way that God loves? The kind of people you love show who you're following, right? The kind of people that you love show who you're following. And in closing, Jesus says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This verse causes a lot of people headaches because taken just by itself, it sounds like Jesus is setting a standard that is impossible to fulfill. But in its context, this passage the, is the perfection required is that of love. The challenge is to love others the same way that God loves us, even those who harm us, even those that don't love us in return. And that's impossible. And that's why we need to love, that's why that love needs to come from God, and we need to be willing to ask it from him in boatloads, in wheelbarrows full. A lot of love, lot, God. I need a lot of love, especially for this person, because they don't deserve it, but I have to give it to them anyway. And there are people right now in your life who are very unlovely, and it's really hard for you to love them. I know that. And God's saying, you need to be willing to ask. Just be willing to ask. Are there people who are unlovely? Um, you bet there are. My friends, we can't love them on our own. Not on our own, and you don't have to because God says, I'll love through you. story is told of Corey Temboon. She was, was a, a survivor of the Holocaust who became a believer during that period of time. And she was speaking at a, at a, a church um, in Europe once. And after she got done, she got down, and um, she was walking down the aisle, and a man extended her hand 
his hand to her, and it was one of the prison guards. And in that moment, she had to make a decision. Will I love him in spite of all that he did from, to me and my family? And God just gave her a love, a supernatural love, where she was able to reach her hand out and extend love and grace to this man who was weeping. He knew what he had done. You know, people, love is going to do something for the life of somebody else. When we love in return for evil, that speaks volumes to who we are in Christ. It does. Jesus is calling us to a greater righteousness, a love that is, that, uh, love, um, a love that is not portrayed by this world. You've heard it said, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, do this. Jesus is challenging us and moving us to a righteousness that can't be obtained through good works or through the keeping of the law. Rather, it's a deep righteousness, a deeper righteousness, a righteousness of Christ living inside those who believe, and it's a righteousness that's being worked out in us and through us to a lost and dying world. Would you close with me in prayer? Gracious Father, thank you so much for this passage that's so challenging, it's so counterintuitive to what we, what we would normally or how we would normally respond to injustices in our life. Father, give us a love. Give us a love for the unlovely people in our life. They're there. And it's hard, and some of them may be in our own family. Some may be some people that we work with. And we're dealt with them, we're faced with them every single day. Help us to reach out to you and ask you to give you, give us, the love that we need to love them. Thank you that your resources that we have, we're blessed in so many ways. But they're all yours. Help us to be generous with the things that we have the surrender of our possessions, the surrender of our time, the surrender of our, our affections. Father, all of this we give to you because it all belongs to you. Thank you, Father, for the way that your work continue to trust you for what you're going to do here in our life and in this church as a whole. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.